take your Bible over to 2 Corinthians in chapter 13 and 2 Corinthians. Just two more messages left. And then we're going to preach a message series on spiritual warfare. And then we're going to do 1 Samuel. And then we'll more than likely do 2 Samuel. You can't, you can't have the second out the first. Let me read this text. And um, as we're preparing to read here, um, if you look in verse chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, um, and, then, and then I'll make sure and dismiss the children here right after that. It says this, This is the third time I am coming to you, Paul says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be confirmed. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance that those who have sinned in the past and do all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking proof that Christ speaks in me, he is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God towards you. I'll jump down to verse 10. For this reason, I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up, not for tearing down. Can I pray over our text and for our kids' ministry this morning? Thank you for this text. We need it. Let us... This is a difficult subject matter. As we've been looking at this idea of pastoral ministry and this this next idea from the text he does not spare redemptive correctional church discipline he does not spare church discipline let us learn from this let us submit to a thrice holy god in it then have your hand on our children's ministry on our kids club today bless a lesson may be able to be emphasized in the home god bless that ministry here today Bless our time. Bring someone who's not in Christ to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you can be, now be dismissed to the children's ministry. Kids club elementary age. <coughs> okay, take, uh, take a look at the text here. Um, now, you've got an outline inside of this bullet, a bulletin. If you've grabbed one this morning, and you can kind of see this is now part three of four. One more message. This is kind of a four-part message. And the title of the message is Authentic Pastoral Ministry. Authentic apostolic ministry. Now, thus far, you've already seen uh, that we've walked through point number one, the signs of a true apostle. We looked at the apostle Paul, and um, that really doesn't apply as much to pastoral ministry, but we saw the signs of a true apostle, and then we've been relating it to what good pastoral ministry looks like. What good ministry from a pastor to his flock, from a flock to each other. Next, we've looked at that in chapter 12, 14 through 16 on your outline. That Paul spent himself for their souls. That's good pastoral ministry. We looked at how the servants that go out from from pastoral ministry have integrity. We've looked at the kind of service that good pastoral ministry does. It does for the good of others. Then we looked at last week. Good pastoral ministry has a seriousness about sin. Now this week, everybody's favorite subject matter. Paul says good pastoral ministry. Authentic apostolic ministry, but really... Good pastoral ministry, not only from from the elders and leaders of the church, but even within the church body towards each other. But Paul, in the end, tells the church, 
I'm not going to be able to spare church discipline. This is point number six, good pastoral ministry, authentic pastoral ministry. Spare not church discipline. If you're looking for a church, if you're online and you're looking for a good church and you want to know what it's one of the marks of a truly good, authentic, biblically um, gospel-centered church, that church will believe in the, what, I, what sometimes I would even like to put on the front of it, corrective and redemptive church discipline, right? We sometimes think church dis- or discipline is a bad thing. Discipline is a good thing. If a parent does not discipline their kids, the Bible says they hate their kids. Discipline is a good thing. Not that we go around looking for it. One of the benefits of church, of being a member of a church, is that that church obligates itself that if it need be, they would not only be a discipline in your life, but would ask for you to be a part of that discipline. So Paul here brings up the matter of church discipline. I like to call it corrective and redemptive. That's always the goal of it. It's not to shame people. It's not to punish people. It's to say to people, you've sunk so far in your unholiness, it has become so obvious, it has become so public, it has not been taken care of. We're, there's a process that the scriptures line out for this to be taken care of so you can be redeemed, so you can walk with the Lord, so you can be conformed to his image, and the body of Christ is going to help each other in that. If you've never heard a message on redemptive church discipline, and this is your first, I would encourage you to reserve your judgment on thinking how negative this is Spend some time getting to know the Word of God. Um, We've spoken of this before uh, when it's come up in the text. And by the way, this is what's great about studying through a book of the Bible. You come across things in the text that are just there, right? And you you have to be um, ethical enough to cover it and not skip over it. I would love nothing more than to skip over this part. But I can't skip over this part. For the good of our souls and the good of my soul. Now let me give you a personal ministry confession when it comes to the use of corrective, redemptive church discipline. In my first probably 10 years of ministry, I ignored it. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. I just thought it was something for maybe the early church to do, but that had kind of passed off the scene. And then as I began to get honest with the Word of God and see that this is actually something to use, and it has been used in in my pastoral ministry and the churches I've served in, the last two, I've seen it. I've seen it used, and sometimes it's resulted in repentance. Oftentimes, it hasn't yet that I've seen. But I will tell you that one of the things I've discovered in my own personal life, uh, own personal ministry, I think I fall short sometimes with redemptive, corrective church discipline. And and here's what I mean: there have been some occasions where there was something that should have gone further in the redemptive process that it was trying to be handled one-on-one or two to three, that it didn't get processed further towards the church. Once I began to get honest with it after about 10 years of ministry, I've been in ministry now, I believe. I'm going on maybe 26 years of being in ministry. And so there's been times in my life where there's been a struggle where sometimes you almost don't go further for the fear of man. I've also discovered in my own personal, this is just personal confession, it tends to be that when a man... When a man is in rebellion and sin, and legitimately so, his sin needs to keep going through the processes of redemptive discipline, I'm I'm much more comfortable doing that than than if it is a lady. I've discovered even many times in my ministry, I believe, that there have been times where there was a need, but I actually backed off because it seems like I, I... 
You almost don't want to be like that ogreish man who is just putting his thumb down on everybody, especially so, especially a woman. Okay, this is some of the soul. I've, so I've even discovered in my own life and ministry. There's times where I even I think I'm not. I'm still learning. I'm still processing. Still trying to work through this. Still trying to be faithful. If you're a member of Collierville Bible Church, part of our membership agreement, part of our membership, our statement of of agreement, part of being a member is you sign a document and we go through that document every time someone joins. And you're agreeing to redemptive church discipline. We're, we're agreeing that we will fear God more than fear the opinion of man, that we would walk you through that process, that we all need that process. Paul here is not going to spare when redemptive discipline is needed. Paul's not going to spare it. He's going to keep going forward towards it. Now, a lot of people have looked at this text and thought, well, what, what took him so long to do it? You know, one of the things you've got to realize about redemptive church discipline is, is a lot of times in the scriptures, it's a process. It's a patient process. One of the things that, that has gotten the church in trouble in its past has been when it tried to do discipline, but not in a patient and clear and established um, kind of manner, when it was haphazard and often and sometimes when it was really at the whims of whatever leaders were leading that ministry. But that's not Paul here. Paul lets them know. And this is point number six on your outline. He will not be able to spare church discipline when he arrives a third time. He'll not spare it. And why will he not spare the church discipline in this case? Well, there's a couple reasons. Now, if you discovered last week, there are certain sins they were struggling with. They had sins that would seem to be respectable, like in verse 20 of chapter 12, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. We talked through that. But we also they also have sins of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. They have all sorts of sins, whether they're accusing his character or they're living immoral or all sorts of things that many of them have already repented. But there's this small group that have not repented yet. There's this small faction in the Corinthian church. And so he says, when I come, we're going to deal with this. Now, here's one of the great things about redemptive discipline. A lot of times, a church never gets to it if it's being handled well at the one-to-one level. If it's being handled well at the two-to-three level, a lot of times it doesn't even make it to the church. And what's interesting about our text, Paul is about to make a third visit to them. Paul had already made a second visit. Paul had already written a second a letter that we don't have any record of that rebukes them. Paul had already been around them in his first visit. Paul had already made multiple attempts. And many of these people have already repented because the early stages of discipline have already been done. You know, a lot of times church discipline happens not when it makes it to the church, but church discipline happens when a sister sees another sister and sees something and in love approaches her privately and in love and says, Sister, I love you. Here's something that I saw or something that, that I heard you say. And sister, I want to tell you about this, right? That's, that's where a lot of discipline happens, even at that smallest level. The discipline happens at the smallest level when you and another person can't solve something, can't come to resolution, and you get now neutral mediators, one to two people to help reconcile you. Now, that's a lot of times where discipline can happen. Paul has already done some of that. So when he, and guess what? When you read this book, you discover <coughs> several have already repented. Several have already uh, received that discipline at the lower levels. Now when Paul comes, this remnant who haven't repented, 
Paul has every right to bring them through that process and every right to do what he's doing right here because he fears God, he doesn't fear man. And for their good, it's needed. Now, why can he not spare? A couple things. In chapter 13, verse 1, here's, um, these are sub-points to point number 6. Why can he not spare church discipline? Because the process so far has been handled patiently and consistently. It has been handled patiently and consistently. So he's not going to spare it because it's been done right so far. He has had multiple issues, of multiple times of contact with him. He has sent emissaries there. He has written letters. He has done everything he can to bring them. So patiently and consistently. Chapter 13, verse 1, notice Paul says this. This is the third time I am coming to you. Paul has made multiple attempts. This is how it works. Sometimes people think redemptive church discipline should happen like this. Well, I saw a problem. There's a problem. I talked to this person one time. Didn't get a resolution. When are we going to bring this person up in front of the church? This is not how it works. It's often a slow process. When is it not a slow process? Well, in the scriptures, it's not a slow process. If a ministry leader or a pastor is in open sin, that actually doesn't, that kind of does the pass go. You you go directly to jail kind of thing. That pastor has to be brought up and confessed, and many times he may be disqualified. So the higher levels of ministry, you don't get as slow of a process. Or the sin becomes so well known. For instance, in the Corinthian church, if you remember back in chapter 5, there was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother. And he was bragging about it to everybody. It became so commonly reported, so it had to be confronted. But most of the time, it's a slow, consistent, patient process. Why is that? Because you want to make sure that the person has ample opportunity to repent. That oftentimes when you are approaching somebody and you're trying to help get repentance in their life, there's a couple things that have to happen. One, you've got to get the log out of your own eye. And I find sometimes even the first go-round of a conversation with somebody, you might not have gotten the log out of your own eye. Then next, sometimes it's a process of appealing to people from different angles. You take a land, air, and sea approach. When I have a first conversation with somebody of something that seems to be objective, credible sin that I've observed and I've seen in their life and seen through just the emergence of our relationship, I, I don't, just because the first time doesn't go well, that doesn't make me kind of hang it up. I'm thinking, okay, there's probably going to have to be another time we're going to have to talk. It's going to probably be multiple conversations. Paul says, I'm coming to you a third time. Paul's coming to him a third time tells you that there's been a process. He's laid it out. And in this process, several have already repented. That second letter, that letter of repentance, we don't have a copy of it, but Paul talks about it in this letter and says, this is what resulted in your, this contributed towards your repentance. It's a slow process. So he's got to do it. He's going to go about this. He warns them of it, but he has done it correctly and he has done it patiently. Now, number two, he's going to not spare, he's not going to spare the redemptive correctional church discipline because this process has been handled scripturally. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. After he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you, he says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be confirmed. Now, in my LSB Version Bible here, it has that in all caps. And it has that in all caps because what it's trying to tell you is that this is referencing other portions of Scripture that say this principle. If you're taking notes, you can write down Deuteronomy 17.6. If you're taking notes, you can write down Deuteronomy 19.15. If you're taking notes, you can write down Numbers 35.30, Numbers 35.30, Deuteronomy 19.15, Deuteronomy 17.6. 
And, and here's what those texts are telling you. Those texts tell you that if there was capital, some kind of capital punishment for somebody, that, for instance, murder, right? You, that was not going to happen on the, on the testimony of just one person. There need to be two or three witnesses when there's a capital crime. Why is that? Because you didn't want a false accusation. You didn't want somebody losing their life because somebody just had a grudge and said some gossip about you. So you had to have two or three witnesses. Paul is referring back to this idea that the discipline that he's about to bring, it's not going to be on the subjective idea of just one occasion or one witness. There's going to be multiple witnesses. He's he's handling it in a scriptural way. There's multiple in the congregation. He's made multiple visits. This is the two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6 says this, Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death, but he shall not be put to death on the mouth of one witness. This is for capital punishment. Numbers 35.30, referring, this is what he's referring back to. If anyone strikes down a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the mouth of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So, one witness wasn't enough to convict you. This is God's law. This was to protect the, from false accusations. By the way, haven't you noticed that we don't care about false accusations anymore? We will clearly make false accusations and not feel bad about it. By the way, tonight when we do the abuse study tonight, we want to look at how to thoughtfully minister to those who are going through abuse. We also want to help how to protect from false accusations. Both are actually wrong. So even here in the text, we see that you couldn't be convicted without the two or three witnesses. When Paul's mentioning this, by the way, this is just a side note. Some people say, well, you, we only obey the New Testament. We don't obey the Old Testament. And I would say, well, Paul's referring back to the Old Testament to bring legitimacy to the scriptural process. Now, in Deuteronomy 19.15, although this seems to not be dealing with as much capital punishment, but it, it, it says something interesting in Deuteronomy 19.15. It says this. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be established. And if you read further, a couple of verses after that, it basically, you could, you could as a, uh, a single witness, make an accusation against somebody. For instance, in Deuteronomy 19, it might be about land border and disputes. But it also says in the text that if you bring an accusation against somebody... But, but you know you're lying about it, and it gets discovered within the judicial system, and you basically lied, and you've lied about it, then the punishment that you wanted to bring on that person, guess what's going to happen to you? Punishment's going to come back on you as well. Isn't that interesting? Now, I said, let's say this. Paul is doing this scripturally. Now, here's the hardest thing about redemptive church discipline. It, it almost feels draconian and almost evil and almost... Kind of like, wait a minute, isn't the church supposed to invite people in and not... I mean, how can we do this kind of thing? How do we know God's a part of this? I'm glad you asked. Hold your place and look at Matthew 18. This is probably... Although this isn't the only verse when it comes to redemptive discipline, it's probably one of the key ones. And I want you to notice something very interesting. I'm just going to read straight through it and kind of give you some ideas. He says in verse 15, if your brother sins against, if your brother sins, this is Matthew 18, 15. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So it's really typically supposed to be one-on-one is where it starts. Now, verse 16. 
If he does not listen to you, take two or more with you. So by, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Guess what text he's getting that from? Deuteronomy 19, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 17, 6, the ones we just mentioned. Now, keep looking at it. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the who? So at some point it has to go to the church. The church has to be involved. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Let him be to somebody who is not, um, not among the body of Christ. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's this idea of binding and loosing. What has heaven declared? Sometimes when you do redemptive discipline, you can think to yourself, are we even doing God's will? This seems draconian. It seems evil. And then it says this in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it may be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst. I would submit to you that we see evidence in the text that when a church does the process correctly, that the promise is you are doing heaven's will and that if the witnesses agree, the, the decision you make to practice corrective, redisciplined, corrective, redemptive discipline, you are doing heaven's will. And you are gathering in God's name. Isn't that amazing? So go back to your text. The process had been handled scripturally. Paul had clearly had the evidence of the two or three witnesses multiple times over. So the next steps he takes are going to be the right steps. By the way, as a side note, <coughs> as a side note, if you were to look at 1 Timothy 5.19, do you know that it says that from someone who's in ministry leadership, especially an elder pastor, that you're not to receive an accusation about them except by how many witnesses? Two to three, it says. Even that, you know what's really interesting? I've noticed, by the way, there's a lot of pastors that are up to no good. Amen? There's a lot. But also... There's some that are doing a fine job, but someone gets some reason to go attacking them and they'll plaster their name all over social media. And then you'll see Christians just with the slightest bit of gossip jump on the bandwagon and start saying things about it. And that that pastor, and I would say, the word of God says the evidence of two or three witnesses. Whenever I hear something bad said about another pastor, I refuse to believe it until I start hearing the two to three witnesses. Do I have the the, the right corroborating witnesses to even bring an accusation. I've known a lot of men whose ministries were destroyed by false accusations, and it actually was never true of them. So you see Paul here. He's doing a very biblical process, the two or three witnesses. When he goes about it, he'll, they'll be doing heaven's will. He can have this confidence that the Lord is walking in the midst if he has to practice any kind of redemptive discipline. I love that he's taking his time. It's been patient. He's doing it according to the method of scripture. Then point number three. He's not going to spare the church discipline. Point number three of the kind of subpoint, Really because the scriptures command him to do it. He has to do it. Chapter 13 verse 2. Look at it. He says, I have previously said when present the second time. And though no absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past. And to all the rest as well. If I come again, I will not spare anyone. I'll not spare you. Now, here's why I say the, the scriptures command it. What is motivating him to, do, to say what he says in verse 2? It's the scriptures. What is motivating? He's an apostle that's receiving the revelation from God. 
He's already had them, he's already commanded this happen in 1 Corinthians. This idea of redemptive discipline is not a new thing, it's a scriptural principle. He's not going to let go of it. The scriptures command it. This is the only thing that really, in the end, encourages me to go forward when it's time to bring loving, corrective, redemptive discipline past the one on one to the two to three to the church is. I have to be convinced from the scriptures that it's commanded such a thing. So Paul, this is his motivation for doing it. He says, I won't be able to spare you. I've told you this before. There's a biblical ethic running behind. In verse 1, he says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the, the scriptures have commanded it. He's gone through the process. And number 4, the church participates in it. Why can he not spare it? Because the church participates in it. What's interesting, the part of church discipline that has to happen is you have to involve the church in it eventually. Matthew 18 says you eventually have to tell it to the church. Church discipline, someone should not be put out of the body of Christ without the church knowing about it and without the church having the opportunity to encourage repentance in that person's life. Notice that Paul says by the mouth of two or three witnesses, this is going to happen. Who are the witnesses? It's the church. Who is it going to be told to? The church. Part of saying I'm a member or part of being a member of a church is you're saying I will take an active role in redemptive correctional discipline should it be needed as a part of the body of Christ. I would want somebody to do this for me and I will participate in it as hard and as ugly and as gut-wrenching as it is. I'm going to do this. So the church will participate in it. I love in verse 2 where he says, I have previously said when present the second time, and though no absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare you. You know, some of the greatest ways to cause accountability in my life is to go ahead and tell people what I'm planning to do. You ever notice that? If you'll tell people what you plan to do, it's almost like you're kind of like, okay, well, I guess I got to do it because I told you that I was going to do something. I love that he says, I told you this the second time I was with you. I'm writing a letter before my third visit. This is something we're going to do. You're going to participate in this. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and tell you so that there's some accountability in this thing. So it's interesting. The church will participate in it. Of course, Matthew 18, 17 tells us that you've got to tell it to the church. Now look at chapter 13, verse 10. Here's the thing that, that really, I think, is really awesome about the, the text is Paul's motive was completely pure in it. He had nothing... He didn't want to hurt anybody intentionally. But his, method, his motive was pure in it. Look in verse 10. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity. He says, I don't want to do this. No, no man who fears God and loves people actually wants to do the discipline. As a parent, you don't want to do the discipline. You do the discipline because it's good for him. You have to. But intrinsically, you don't want to do it. And the only reason you don't want to do it is because there's this threat of selfishness or inconvenience. But Paul says, when I, so that when I present, I, will not, I don't want to do this. I don't, when I'm with you, I don't want to have to be severe. Look in verse 10, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me. I, I, don't, I don't want to do this. I'd rather that you repented. I'd rather that this isn't an issue when I show up. He says, why? Because the Lord gave me for building up the body, not tearing it down. Now notice, Paul says, I'll tear it down if I have to. 
I will bring this redemptive discipline for the remnant who've not repented. I'll do it, but I don't want to do that. Actually, I'd rather focus on building up. I'd rather build you up. So when I come, I'm going to go ahead and throw this. I'm going to go ahead and make sure this letter is clear and that you know the guy you saw on the second visit who took the position of weakness and didn't confront you as heavily, but left, went back to Ephesus, wrote a second letter that was a strong, heavy, rebuking letter that resulted in a lot of your repentance. When I show up a third time, don't think it's going to be Paul that you saw it the second time. God had me, had me operate a different way the second time. And I, I really believe there are some things that happened. God gave an opportunity for the people to repent. God gave an opportunity for Paul to claim that, that when you think something's really weak, it actually can be strong. And he's going to make a point about that here in a minute. But Paul says, I want to build you up. That's what I want to come and do. His motives are pure. When church redemptive discipline is, when church discipline is done in a redemptive, corrective way, those who are a part of it, from the leadership to the people, our goal is really, we don't want to do it, but, but we will do it. We don't want to, but we will. For the glory of God, for their good. But if we had another, if we had another route, we'd rather build that person up. We'd rather they repent. I love that Paul has taken so many painstaking efforts to get to this point. What encouragement it is for us. You know, there's so many things that in life we haven't confronted. There's so many relationships where we've not brought instruction and correction to. We've just kind of let the sin go on and just hopefully things will just get better. And we've let it go, we've let it go, we've let it go. And then we just wait till the end and let it explode. And the person is almost surprised. You ever seen that before where someone is surprised that someone's upset with them and they act like they don't know anything about it? When really the problem is the person who's upset with them has just never talked to them about it. This is the first they're ever hearing of it. The great thing about the Corinthian church, there's nowhere the Corinthians can go, whoops, I didn't see this coming. Like, Paul, I can't believe this is, what? You mean I'm, I'm being turned over to Satan? I'm being taken out of the church? Fellowship is being denied to me. Communion is being denied to me. Paul, what? Where is this coming from? I don't even understand. No one could say that. When I was in Janesville, Wisconsin, we had a situation of, of church discipline with a couple. And actually, it was really unique. Um, this couple was obtaining an unbiblical divorce. And we practiced, we, we went through the whole process of redemptive discipline. And um, they didn't repent, but we went through the whole process and then Put them, turned them over to Satan, put them out of the church. Um, and at the end of it, just wanting to kind of test it out um, for my own soul. I, my question to them is, hey, this whole process that we did with you, were, was anybody mean? Was the church mean? I mean, because we gave the church an opportunity to speak in these people's lives. Was anybody mean or did you presence that this was haphazard or people just wanted to be severe or just inflict you? And here's what the people said. Although they didn't repent, they did say, you know what? The whole process was handled well. I could tell that people loved us and cared for us. It's our own unrepentance, but you loved us well. That's the kind of idea that, that should emerge from redemptive discipline, that, that even the motives are clear in it. And you see that with Paul. Now, look back at chapter 13, and I want to close with verse 3 through 4. Very difficult to understand, but hopefully I can connect it upright. Look in verse 3. Now remember, this whole book, it's about the gospel for the weak. The Corinthians, the, especially the false apostles, had told the Corinthians, 
if Paul really was a man of God, he would take these kind of power stances with you guys. There would be no displays of weakness in his life. He would just be powerful and always victorious. And there would never be anything negative. He'd never be persecuted if he was really an apostle. And Paul comes in in 2 Corinthians and says, Actually, I am so weak because of the work of the gospel. I am so weak that I, I thought... In chapter 1, he says, I thought I had the sentence of death on me. He's like, I'm so weak. And actually, in my weakness is where I find the strength of Christ. He totally turns it on the Corinthians. And now he uses that same idea to confound them once again and go, wait a minute. You guys are saying my ministry is not legitimate to you because of my weakness. But, but once again, I want to point out something to you. It's the weakness of Christ that we see on the cross as he takes on the judgment of God in our place. And because of the weakness of Jesus, I'm, now don't think I'm saying weak as in he's not God, the weakness of humbly going to the cross and sacrificing himself and dying a martyr's death in our place on the cross, that weakness in the moment actually resulted in power in the end when he rose from the dead three days later. And Paul says in verse 3, since you're seeking proof that Christ speaks in me, you're wanting some proof? He is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Now, if you're looking on your outline, this is point number seven. He speaks gospel hope. He's, he, he may have to do some redemptive discipline. He's not looking forward to it. He'll do it. But in the midst of this, I want you to notice he speaks gospel hope. He basically is telling them, you don't think that Christ is in me because you see all this weakness in my life. But let me prove that he is strong in you and powerful in you. He's not weak towards you, but mighty in you. And what is he telling them? Hey, a lot of you have already repented. You, you think that God isn't doing anything. In fact, many of you have already repented. And in fact, the weakness that you saw in my life, God has used that. I actually went back and wrote a letter. And, and, and since that time, God has been working. And in weakness, we actually see strength. In the, and, and don't we see this in Jesus? In the weakness of the cross was actually the power of God. So much manifest that Jesus couldn't stay dead. He came back alive the third day. Verse 4, he says, For indeed, Jesus, he was crucified because of weakness. Yet he lives. Because of the power of God. Corinthian church, he's saying, this sin that has brought such weakness, actually, because of the power of the resurrection and the power of God, that is the only thing sustaining my life, and that is what's actually going to sustain you and bring you to repentance. It is the power of the resurrection. For we are also weak in him, Paul says, yet we will live with him because of the power of God towards you. Paul says, Corinthian church, have you not seen the power of God in your life? My ministry to you, although you are so far off, progressively you have, you've been sanctifying. Can you not see even in the weakness the power of God in your life? Those of you that have not repented yet, can you not see the weakness but the power of Christ? God loves to come in where there's weakness and show forth his power. That's why the whole thing we've been calling 2 Corinthians, the gospel for the weak. Do you feel weak to sin? What a great opportunity to experience the resurrection power of Christ. So Paul comes in and gives them some gospel hope. He gives them some gospel proof. I, I love that he, he does this. And by the way, let me just tell you the end of the story. Um, if you were to take your Bible and you were to go to 
go ahead and do this. Look at Romans 16 as we close out the, the, of just this message. We have one more. We'll look at next week from this. But the question you might be wondering is, did they actually repent? What happened? He says he's going to discipline them when he comes. He says it's not going to be like the second visit where things get really out of hand and I just leave and write a letter. I'm going to be there with you in person. I'm going to handle it. We're going to follow it all the way through. I don't want to be severe in this, but we'll do what, we'll do what God wants us to do. We'll handle this redemptive discipline process. And some wonder, what actually happened when he came? Do we see any evidence? Well, he did make it to Corinth, made the third visit. He was there for three months. You can read about that in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. He was there for three months. While there, those three months, things did not go good with, with um, the ethnic Jews there that Actually, things got bad and he got kind of persecuted and had to leave. But within the church itself, we see some great evidence that the power of God displayed itself in the weaknesses. That the power of God was made manifest and true. The power of the resurrection. Here's why I would say such things. Look in Romans 16 and look in verse 25. Does anybody know where Paul writes the book of Romans? What city? Anybody got a wild guess? Begins with a C. Corinth. He writes it from Corinth. When he goes and makes his third visit for those three months, he writes the book of Romans. Now, what's interesting, if things went bad in Corinth, what book of the Bible do you think he would have talked about things going bad in Corinth? The book of Romans. Interesting, when you get to chapter 16, here's what he says. As he's writing to the Romans saying, I want to come and visit you someday. I'm hoping, I'm hoping to make my way to Spain. He says in verse 25, But now I am going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. Verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia is the region that the Corinthian church is in, were pleased to share with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. His third visit, among the discipline that he would offer the church, they were also taking up that that, poor, that offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, if things went bad when he got down there and there was this wild unrepentance, do you think he's walking away with this big offering for the poor saints back in Jerusalem? No, he's not. I think things actually went good. Things actually went well. That the, the power of God showed itself through weakness. That Paul's weakness that they that they thought was a liability, actually put forth the power of God. And in the end, really the Corinthians are repenting, not just because of Paul, really repenting because this is the work of the gospel. The gospel brings people to repentance. And God has a process for that. When someone has stuck in and dug in their heels, God has used the redemptive correctional process of redemptive discipline. Most of the time it's not happening because it's not happening at the one-on-one level. But Paul writes Romans, and you can see that things go good, so good that he walks away with a large and generous offering for the poor Jerusalem saints to say thank you and to share with the needs. They've shared their spiritual. The Corinthians are going to share their material. God does a wonderful work. He writes the book of Romans from there, and God is glorified. God is glorified and amazing. Now, in this message, here's just what I want to say. Would you, could we pray to God that as a church we'd not be fearful to bring loving one-on-one correction and that we'd not be fearful 
that after we've done every effort to make the loving correction, that if we had to go get witnesses, we would, we would then go to the next step. And that in the midst of the weakness that that really is, that we would trust that the power of the resurrection actually enters into that process. And, the, and what God has given you at salvation will be given to the people who profess Christ. They'll, they have a great opportunity to repent when they're confronted. And that you who, in that moment of greatest weakness of being confrontation, can depend on the power of the gospel, that you have a new life with Christ, that you are a different person. Can we trust the weakest thing you'll ever do is trying to actually lovingly bring correction to somebody. The weakest thing sometimes for a church to do is actually even practice this. But the place where you might and will find some of the greatest power of God is in the midst of that weakness. When you are completely dependent on him, when you're looking at the bigness of your own sin, when you're doing some, it is so humbling to participate in this kind of process. There's a new fear of God. And then you start to understand the potential for life change. People's lives have been changed and brought from the fire through the redemptive process. Discipline is not all bad. In fact, the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 12 that if God's not disciplining us, then we're not his children. It's not a bad thing. Praise God that God has done a work in these Corinthians through the power of the gospel. I trust that this same power of the gospel that was there for the Corinthians is there for Carville Bible Church in 2024. Would you stand together and let's pray over this text? Would you join with me? We fear your name. Holy, holy, holy are you. You've called us to be separate from sin. You've called us as a result of salvation to not be caught in the deeds of the flesh, to not live like our former manner of life. You have called us away from that into you. Would you let a holy fear and a holy reverence for you be something that draws us to only repent ourselves, but to be willing to make the efforts at repentance in the body of Christ. We need your help. If there is somebody here who has not bowed the knee and trusted Christ as Savior, God, Would you do it today? Would you convict them of sin? Would you show them your righteousness? Would you show them their condemnation? Then you would show them the opportunity for grace? Would you show them their unholiness? Then we show them your holiness. Could they do nothing but call out to you for salvation? Would you do that? The rest of us, would we take this serious? What great ministry. Would you help fathers and husbands in their homes? To be the type of shepherds that in the weakness of it, that the power of Christ could be in their leadership to address things in their home, not for his own selfish glory, but for the glory of God. Would you help wives as they, wives and mothers, as they discipline their children, as they are the helpers to their husband, to not fear him, but fear God. That, this, that our women could be godly and intercede In the midst of something very weak, trust that the power of Christ on them for loving confrontation. Would you help the body of Christ do this for each other? Would you let us not fear each other but fear you? Would you let every bit of 
of loving gospel-centered confrontation help to really see the bigness of our own sin? Would you let us look at the logs in our own eye before we take the specks out of our brother and sisters? Would you help us to be a holy church? Would you do something with what we even see Paul dedicated to? Would you let us have patience and a thoroughness in the process? Would you let us practice what we've seen in the text? We are a weak people, but we're a people that the power of God resides in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for how you're convicting us of sin. You're changing us. You're conforming us. We're not the same that we used to be. Would you keep doing a work? We trust you. Let us now delightfully sing to you and take a meal together and, and take communion together and, and build up like Paul wanted to with each other. Would you do it? And God's people said, amen. Let's sing together and then we'll have our time of a meal.